One of the great things about social media is if you want to express yourself about sports and give your opinion, whether you're right or factually inaccurate, as long as you're saying the words, I'm speaking my truth, then nine times out of 10, you'll get some kind of pass. And while it may be your truth and you might say the words with conviction, it doesn't make it so. When Kendrick Perkins, with a straight face, I'm assuming, says, there's no debate. LeBron James is the GOAT when it comes to things off the court. And he must be referencing his activism. Nah, nah, fam, you're wrong. There's a man named Bill Russell. Jim Brown. Lou Alcindor slash Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. Kurt Flood. And the GOAT himself. Muhammad Ali. And I'm not going to lose it. I'm not going to snap. I mean, we all, we can agree to disagree. That's the beauty of sports. But rather than lose it, this episode of the Cypher, this episode of the NBA Cypher, you know what we're going to do? We're going to call this Love and Basketball Part 2. So rather than sound hateful or angry, If you love sports, if you love the NBA, let's celebrate it. Let's play some uplifting samples every time things get a little heated. Let's try that. I remember Charles Barkley appearing on Sports Illustrated in chains with the words, I am not a role model. I remember that. But I disagree with Charles. A lot of athletes, celebrities, for whatever reason, younger people do look up to them. And what they say and how they project themselves, it has an impact. So I disagree with him. Michael Jordan, in the early 90s, wasn't an activist. Throughout probably the prime of his career, he just wasn't into engaging in that way. In a Senate race in 1991, he didn't support Harvey Gantt. Or let's say he didn't, he just didn't get involved. And I think no one is above criticism. But my question would be, we all know Michael was the biggest star in the NBA at the time. But I don't remember any stories, and I am a basketball I am a basketball junkie. I watch ball. I remember watching Bird, even as he got older, Dominique Wilkins, Jordan, Michael, Barkley. Every chance I got, I'm watching the NBA. And I'd heard the stories about how he didn't get involved, and it wasn't a big deal to most people. It was a big deal to maybe insiders Maybe it was an even bigger deal to people in North Carolina. But I don't think it was a national story. I do think because of the way The Last Dance is airing and ESPN is getting 6 million people watching every time it airs, it's become somewhat of a national story. But I'm saying that to say this. I don't remember stories of Larry Bird's activism or Magic Johnson's activism, Isaiah Thomas's activism, Patrick Ewing. Basically, 
I don't remember anybody on the dream team being an activist in the prime of their careers. Now, maybe I'm wrong, and I'm sure somebody out there, somebody in the fam could go, you're actually wrong, Mo. This person did this, or this person stood up and did that. But I don't remember that. Michael Jordan deserves to be criticized because, yes, he could have done more. I'm not saying he had to be Bill Russell or Kurt Flood. But he could have engaged more. I just want to know how all the other great players in the 80s and early 90s, I don't remember stories of their activism. What was Penny and Shaq doing in 95, 96? Because I don't remember them being activists. What about David Robinson? Who, who, what, what did he do? Carl Malone, John Stockton. The NBA, what's the first thing they tell you is? It's a league of stars. It's the one league because there are no helmets. They're not covered up. We know their faces. We know who the best players are. I don't remember the activists. Show me the dream teamers that were activists in the prime of their careers because a lot of people speak out more past their career, in their second life. If we're criticizing Jordan and holding him to the standard of he didn't engage the way Russell did, the way Kareem did, the way Jim Brown did, the way the GOAT himself, Muhammad Ali did. That's fine. Biggest star, but he wasn't the only star. Magic and Bird are credited with saving the league. But I don't remember the stories of their activism as they dominated the 80s. But I'm sure somebody can point that out and go, you know, this guy who ran for Senate, Magic got elected. Or this congressman, Bird got elected. Please point out to me. Oh, wait a minute. I'm doing it. And just like that, I'm all better. And in no way am I trying to criticize Magic or Larry Bird. I was really just using them as examples because I've noticed within the last three or four days, there have been so many debates about Michael Jordan's lack thereof in terms of being an activist. I watched The Last Dance. Michael Jordan, in his own words, said, I was about basketball. Was it selfish? Probably. But he's letting you know where he was at. I'm not defending him. I think he should be criticized for not being more engaged in that particular run. That's that that seat that was up in North Carolina. But him being the biggest star, that shouldn't excuse the second biggest star and the third biggest star and so on and so on. Anybody that played in the 80s and into the 90s and you were considered an all-star or slash superstar and you didn't speak up on social issues and you weren't an activist, then you're no better than Michael Jordan was. I guess he's just low-hanging fruit because he's the biggest star. Magic Johnson's my favorite player of all time. Y'all have heard me say this over and over, and I'll continue to say that. But if there's no record of his activism back then, through the 80s and into the 90s, then he deserves the same amount of criticism. And everybody else on the Dream Team 
who didn't engage on social issues that mattered or impacted their communities. That's how I feel. I know the last dance seems to be a documentary, but it is more entertainment. You're getting the perspective of Michael Jordan. And when he reveals to you how he felt about certain opponents, certain teams, these are his truths, his opinions. It doesn't mean you have to agree with it. This is how he feels coming from his point of view. So when you see the beef with Isaiah Thomas, that's his point of view. Agree or disagree. When former teammates like Craig Hodges criticize Michael Jordan, I don't have a problem with that. Craig Hodges is giving you his honest opinion. It doesn't mean he's correct, but he is opening opening things up to let you know that everybody wasn't on board with some of the things that Michael Jordan had to say. Remember, say it again, nobody is above criticism. But to be fair, Craig Hodges was an activist. He'd always been that. He feels that he was blackballed from the league, and, and that might be true. But here's the thing. If you have a teammate who's an activist and you're not an activist, by default, that doesn't make you a sellout. He's got to take his own path, grown man, and you have to take your, I'm doing it again. I'm doing it again. Hold on. My point is, Craig Hodges was a very socially active, outspoken athlete. Good brother who was down for getting involved in any cause that shed a light on things within our country. But if you don't follow lockstep with him, that doesn't mean that you're not motivated or you're not impacted by the same issues that he's speaking on. Maybe you're down for the cause, but you don't want to hop on the mic. And there's nothing wrong with that. Everybody's process is different. If Michael Jordan or Magic Johnson or Warren Moon or Dan Marino or any other current and former athlete wants to speak out on social issues, that's their choice. And they have to go through their own personal process of what motivates them, what moves them. No matter what sport you're in, when you're ready to speak out, when, when an issue touches you or, fam, or your family or impacts your community, you'll show and prove when you're ready to. But I don't think that it's on us, the fans, to tell athletes when to feel, when to react, and when to get involved. That's something they have to do in their own time. That's something we do in our own time. I think it's completely fair when you hear players and fans who may be older say that we should keep it about errors because there are so many great players that when you just make a blanket statement by calling one guy the GOAT, it does a disservice to all the great players from the early stages of the NBA, like a George Mikan, a Bob Cousy, the great Bill Russell, the 11-time champion, John Havlicek. What about Doc? 
you almost forget how great a player Julius Irvin, Dr. J was in both the ABA and the NBA. But I understand it is fun to make the comparisons. It's also a disservice, though, when you say, well, when I look at Michael Jordan, he didn't really play anybody. Who did he come up against? In his first title run, remember, they swept the bad boy Pistons, who were the defending two-time NBA champions. He then ran into Magic's Lakers. Now, this wasn't the Showtime Lakers. This Laker team was more of a power post half-court offense that featured James Worthy, Sam Perkins, and Vlade Divac. Along with Magic, they posted up. They lived in the post. They didn't run. Like I said, this wasn't the Showtime Lakers. And this Laker team, which was a very good team, they weren't supposed to be in the finals. If it were not for this Laker team, Clyde Drexler's Blazers would have been in three straight NBA finals. That's how talented that Blazer team was. And look, that's how talented a player Clyde Drexler was. Magic averaged 19, 12, and eight rebounds. He was a year removed from being the league MVP. Worthy was the team's leading scorer at 21 points a game. You had Perkins giving you 13, Byron Scott, 14, Divock, a young Vladi Divock giving you 11 points a game. I think Magic Johnson leading this Laker team to the finals is one of his greatest achievements because they were able to defeat a much more talented Portland squad to get there. And look, as a Laker fan, I knew going into the finals, the Lakers were the underdog. When they won game one, I I was out my, my chair. I was excited. I gave myself this moment of clarity where I thought, you know what? I don't care if they lose game two because the next three games are in L.A. We got them. We can do this. And then Michael and Scotty happened. And next thing you know, the Lakers lose 4-1. But still, I was excited just for the fact that Magic was able to do that that season, get them into the finals. And they were competitive. They just met up against a juggernaut. The next team the Bulls faced was Clyde Drexler's Blazers. And if you saw the last dance, a lot was made of the matchup between Clyde and Jordan. Jordan, clearly the better player, but it's not like Clyde Drexler didn't show up that series. The man averaged 24 points, seven rebounds and seven assists. He showed up and the Blazers lost in six games. They didn't get swept. It wasn't a five game series. There were six games and they could have easily taken it to seven. And once you get there, it's anybody's guess. That was a great team. Terry Porter, perennial all-star. Jerome Kersey. Cliff Robinson. Buck Williams. Three-time all-star, four-time all-NBA defender. Danny Ainge was on that squad. Don't forget, Kevin Duckworth, good low post big, could step away from the basket a little bit. He was a two-time all-star. People sleep on the talent of that Portland roster because they ultimately couldn't get it done in terms of winning in the finals, but that was a talented team. And then, of course, 92-93, you faced Charles Barkley, MVP Charles Barkley's sons. 
On that squad, you got Barkley, KJ, Dan Marley, Richard Dumas, Cedric Sabalos. You had Oliver Miller, Mark West, rim protecting. Don't forget, even Tom Chambers coming off the bench and older Tom Chambers still gave them over 12 points a game as a reserve. That was a loaded, talented squad led by one of the most talented players in NBA history. I think what people forget about the 90s, it wasn't a lack of great players. There were tons of great players, but most of the great players, they were bigs. There were Shaq, Ewing, Olajuwon, Robinson, Matumbo, Mourning, Barkley, Malone, Weber, and then there were point guards, Stockton, Tim Hardaway, Penny Hardaway, Gary Payton. Another big, Sean Kemp. That was the difference. There were tons of stars, tons of talented players, but most of them manned the four and five spots, along with the great point guards. There were some talented two guards, but there weren't that many great two guards other than Clyde and Michael Jordan. There were some very good ones. There were some all-stars. I don't want to sleep on them or disrespect them. Mitch Richmond, I see you. Sprewell came along. He was in that era. Don't forget Grant Hill, Penny Hart. I mean, there was no lack of talent. And back then, your team either had one or two stars. There were there very rarely would you see a team with three stars. So this era. Still playing the more physical, grinded out style. It wasn't devoid of talent. I would say they were devoid of freedom of movement. Had they had the same rules back then? I think players like Penny Hardaway, Grant Hill, Mitch Richmond, Sprewell, they would have been elevated to a higher level because then people couldn't put hands on them. Can you imagine what a guy like Allen Houston would be able to do if you couldn't touch him, something to think about. Before I get into the Bulls path on their second three-peat, I want to let the fam know out there, I'm planning on doing a path for Kobe and Shaq's Lakers, Steph's Warriors, LeBron and D-Wade's Heat, and other stars um, during these trying times look since we don't have current real time sports then we can celebrate the greatness of some of our individual stars and our great teams while we go through this together but before I go forward with Jordan and his crew let me show a little respect to Patrick Ewing's Knicks or should I say Patrick Ewing and Pat Riley's Knicks and while it's true Patrick Ewing really didn't have a second all-star slash superstar player to play off of. The Knicks team, the brilliant of those Knicks teams were that Pat Riley realizing the roster he had, what his franchise player could and couldn't do. He built a, a foundation, a style around their skill sets or lack thereof. The way the Knicks played, I think covered up a lot of their flaws, a lot of their weaknesses. No one ever said 
the Knicks weren't high energy, weren't physical, didn't play hard for 48 minutes, didn't crash the boards, didn't defend at a high level. And that was people one through eight, maybe even nine. Guys like Greg Anthony and Doc Rivers and Derek Harper, who might be the master of the hand check. Great perimeter defenders. Then you had Mason and Oakley. And Mason was more than just a physical presence. Anthony Mason was very skilled. He had the ability to create, bring the ball up. You could run the offense through him. And he was a terrific individual defender. But the key to that team offensively was Patrick Ewing, of course. As great as Ewing was, the one thing that Jordan, or should I say Phil Jackson and the crew knew, as great as a big is, a big had to have the ball brought to him. So there were different ways you could defend a big. Even though Patrick Ewing might be the best jump shooting big in terms of 16 to 18 feet from the basket in NBA history, you can deny a big the ball on multiple possessions. Those series with the Knicks were great wars. But because Pat Riley had them play a certain style, I thought the Knicks always controlled the tempo and the pace of those games, of those series versus the Bulls. I thought their playing style leveled the field for them. Yes, Jordan and Pippen were much more athletic and more skilled than their perimeter players. But their physicality, I thought, gave them a fighting chance to be in those series, to contend at a high level in those series. And maybe this is more about Pat Riley and his greatness. We're always talking about how the truly transcendent players could play well and dominate in any era. I think that applies to the truly great coaches slash general managers. Pat Riley comes from the Showtime Lakers, a completely different style where they're getting up and down the court. They're trying to run you out the gym. And he's got the star power with Magic, Kareem, Worthy, Scott, Coop. He goes to the Knicks and he reinvents another style of play, a more physical style of play around the talent he has. And this is not a fluke. When Pat Riley later on leaves the Knicks, he takes that same style, that same model, and builds a squad around Alonzo Mourning. And that style of play was effective. It was very effective. The one thing that truly stood in Pat Riley's way from getting to more finals, from winning more championships, were the Chicago Bulls. You all know the backstory on the second three-peat. Jordan goes away for the better part of two years, plays baseball. Pippen has an MVP caliber season. He was in the MVP hunt, but clearly the best player in basketball for two seasons at least was Hakeem Olajuwon. Nevertheless, Pippen leads the Bulls to a 55-win season. They play the Knicks in the conference semis, and they lose in Game 7. The very next season, the Bulls have a record of 34-31. and 
and Michael Jordan comes back and they finish 47 and 25. They get to the second round, play the Orlando Magic, the up and coming new beast of the East, Shaq, Penny, 3D, Dennis Scott, Nick Anderson, that crew. And they beat the Bulls in six. I think Jordan was embarrassed. That's real. When they talked about that on the last dance, I think he was embarrassed. I remember watching thinking there's a new there's a new sheriff in town. It's a wrap. I, I, I was thinking Mike coming back, he might get used to being the second best team in the East. And he proved me wrong. The Bulls come back. Jordan gets a full offseason under his belt. They have the best regular season record of all time at the time, 72 and 10. With the addition of Dennis Rodman, they form a big three of their own, if you will. They meet the Magic in the conference semi or conference finals, I'm sorry, and sweep them 4 0. It's a wrap. That's over with. They end up playing the 64 win. Gary Payton, Sean Kemp led Seattle Supersonics in the finals and they win that in six. Think about that talent. Gary Payton, maybe one of the best two-way players ever, could lock you down, not at just a point, but at the two. I've seen him guard threes at a high level and could drop 20 on you. Sean Kemp, incredibly athletic, a lot more skilled than people realize Sean Kemp had a very consistent jump shot, could put the ball on the floor in certain situations, was a great weak side defender. The, those two, dynamic combination. And don't sleep on the fact they had dead left shrimp, versatile player who could play the four, the three, shoot the three at a high level. They had Hersey Hawkins, another great three-point shooter. They had big, smooth Sam Perkins, who could also stretch the, the floor at the five spot. That's Sonic Squad. That was a nice squad. The next season, they they go up against the MVP. They go up against Carl Malone's squad. The Utah Jazz. Carl Malone's 64-win Jazz team. And I've heard a lot of people say the Jazz are overrated. How are they overrated when they've got two Hall of Famers on that, on that starting line? I mean, I don't get that. In their starting lineup, Malone, Stockton. Malone, one of the greatest five power forwards of all time. Stockton, one of the five greatest point guards of all time. The all-time leader in assists in the NBA history. A five-time All-NBA defender. A lot of people don't know this. Carl Malone made All-NBA three or four times defensively. And they were well coached by a Hall of Fame coach. They ran their system over and over and over. And they excelled at the pick and roll, but they were more than just pick and roll. They would just out execute you and they controlled pace like no other. And everybody on that team from Shannon Anderson to Brian Russell to Greg Oystertag or Antoine Carr all played their roles. They had an egoless team. It was all about winning. People forget that that team, the very next season, after they lost in 96-97, they're coming up in 97-98, which would be obviously the last dance. On their way 
to meet the Bulls in the finals. In the conference finals, they sweep the 61-win Lakers, a team that featured four All-Stars. So don't tell me the Jazz are overrated. Think about that. Shaq, Nick Van Exel, Eddie Jones, and Kobe. Now, this is Kobe's second year. He's still a beast, but he's nowhere near the player he's going to become. And they swept them. If I told you I got Carl Malone, John Stockton, Jeff Hornacek, and Greg Orsatag versus Shaq, Nick Van Exel, Eddie Jones, and Kobe, who'd you pick? Before I get out of here, it'd be criminal if I didn't show some love and respect for that 97-98 Indiana Pacers team that played the Bulls in the conference finals and took them to the brink. I don't think any team challenged them the way the Pacers did in that second three-peat. Moving forward, the next episode, we'll talk about LeBron's heat, maybe do a little Kobe Shaq Lakers. Everybody out there stay safe. It's the NBA Cypher. Next time.